All right, welcome back to uh, Book of Mormon Essentials. Come follow me. Podcast. We're glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Host Lynn Wilson and John Cho. So, three questions we always start with: How does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? How does this help me live a more Christ-like life? You know, it's a little bit tricky in the Book of Judges. I think to do that is we have this whole. 21 chapters in one week, you know, we're going to have to take sort of a bird's eye view over it. But I really see Christ as our deliverer. And even though we have a lot of wicked people and wicked judges and mortal humans who are totally fallible, I just see this overwhelming need for a redeemer. Um, But more than anything else, um, I see that this book talks about the consequences of disobeying God. It's just, yeah, it's just a spanking. That's a strong theme in this. (laughs) But the name judge, I think, is a little bit misleading, even at least from our definition. We think of the Supreme Court judges or something like that. Um, in Hebrew, it went more of an administrator or someone who represents the executive branches of government or something. But interestingly, in practice, the people that they're calling to judge are usually military leaders. It's not necessarily a political person very often, except for the prophetess. And the prophetess Deborah, one of the 12, um, uses somebody else as her military leader, and she is the one who's calling the shots and and acting as a real leader of the community. But most of them, I think, are political or military um, leaders. We've got, of the 12 that are mentioned here in the book of Judges, six, they give a lot of details. Well, six, they give a few details on. Three, they give a lot of details on. Three of the six. But six, we barely get a name and, and a couple of other messages. So we don't get too much on them. But as an overview, um, I hope we have time to at least talk about the ones we get a few verses on. Sure. Did you see the we, Pride Cycle? A couple of times. <laughs> a couple we, of times. We I have, think it's six times. <laughs> yeah, we have this amazing narrative, you know, all from Adam all the way down to to Joshua, the death of Joshua. Right. Uh, and chronological, we're in the promised land, right? And this starts to feel a little different. And I think the book covers about 250 or 300 years, give or take a little bit on either end, depending on which scholar you're going to choose to look at on this one. But, um, I think it's still chronological, but the reason why it's different is it's just tragic to see this cycle over and over this, this sin cycle or apostasy cycle, um, oppression, then they repent, and then they del- call on God, and he delivers them, and then he gives them peace, and then they prosper, and they apostatize again. Or It's just tragic. It's just over and over with every few chapters. We get the cycle. In fact, I, I even wrote it up so I could, as I was going through the text, I, I took notes to see, and it's in chapter 3, and chapter 4, and chapter 6, and chapter 10, and chapter 11. You know, they just repeat it over and over as, as it goes through these 21 chapters. It's just tragic. Um, but there's a lot of people in the land that they still have to overcome. Joshua did um, did his best. He got out his 33 or 31, I mean, uh, cities or kingdoms that were taken down, but there's still a lot left. You know, the Bible just says after the death of Joshua, it came to pass, this is chapter one, verse one, that the children of Israel asked the Lord saying, who shall go up for us? But in other historical accounts, I'd like to read um, from Josephus's account on the history of the Jews, the Antiquities of the Jews. He says, after the death of Joshua, for 18 years in all, the multitude had not settled a form of government, 
but were in anarchy. So I don't know if they didn't like who Joshua called or if Joshua did not call someone to replace him. Obviously, King Benjamin made this nice, peaceful transition. I, I don't know what happens here. But according to Josephus, uh, it, was an, it was anarchy for 18 years, which I assume means warfare amongst themselves, but I don't know. After which, I'm now going back I don't back think to, that's much of a stretch to imagine. Yeah, I think that's yeah, about right. Okay. Yeah. Continuing on with Josephus, after which they returned to their former government, they then permitting themselves to be judged by him who appeared to be the best warrior and the most courageous, whence it was that they called this interval of their government the judges. That last part's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's where we get the name. But as we look at the geography of where they are. I, I've got a couple of maps on my videos for anybody who wants to go look to see. They're scattered all over the promised land. And it's not that big of a location. You know, it's it's about the size of New Hampshire, um, the promised land or Vermont. You know, it's it's but these 12 judges are scattered on all sides. And it appears to me that there's not a lot of unity working together. They're in each area. And chapter one starts out, who's going to go f- with us to fight the Canaanites? Well, the Canaanites aren't covering the whole thing. They're just down here by Judah. So Judah and Simeon, who are next door neighbors, they um, rally together and go fight. And then they fight against the Moabites next, and then the Canaanites, and then the Midianites, and the Amorites, and the Philistines. You know, each little story as we go through the chapters talks about one of these enemies. Did you notice, though, that some of these enemies were actually descendants of Abraham? Yeah. Isn't that sad? (laughs) I mean, the Midianites— were children, I mean, that's Jethro was a Midianite. Yeah. For Jethro was a descendant of Keturah and Abraham. And um, the, the Moabites, that's Lot, Lot's right. descendants through his, remember that, that strange relationship where his, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, his daughters um, sleep with him and conceive. So it's an incestuous relationship. But anyway, that's who these people are. Anyways, some of them are not. The Philistines, the Canaanites, you know, but it's just sad to me to see that descendants of Abraham are fighting against each other for this land. What do you see as the themes before we jump into the I, yeah, text itself? Yeah, well, you, we've covered some of them. I, I think this overall theme that, that really has me puzzled is why Israel turned to the sword as their sort of judgment of leadership as compared to, say, Moses and a prophet. Just, a prophet. Yeah. Right. Why, well, why interestingly, they start out with a prophetess at one point. You know, they do use a prophetess, but you're right. Yeah. They are choosing their priorities are messed up. I think about, you know, the, the transition from Moses to, to Joshua. And we talked about this last peaceful. time. It's peaceful, but not just that. But it's like I got this feeling early in, in the book, like, you know, Joseph, uh, Joshua, I need you to be Joshua. The right. Lord raised up Joshua. Yeah, for and that even purpose. Moses, like Moses, I need you to be Moses. Well, I'll take care of the It does say the Lord raises up these people too, in some cases, that, but they are not as faithful. And in other places, it seems like the people just wanted somebody strong. And so they asked for Samson instead of choosing somebody who is, had integrity and right. honesty and was willing to lead them in righteousness. I see the same thing throughout the world as... Um, are we choose our political leaders? We are not choosing men of God. We are choosing what the world says is important. Right, so I start to see a, a little bit of drifting, but also some renewal, right? You know, but I see some, uh, I see some early, I guess, foreshadowing of things like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, where you know they're overemphasizing the wrong things. Yeah, 
as yeah. a theme throughout the book. As a theme okay. throughout the book. So we've That's got right. the theme of the pride cycle or this cycle of sin, yeah, the cycle I think of apostasy. The dominant theme. Yeah. Um, that is another theme that I see is it's repeated. It's right at the end. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I they're think that's the root of it. Self-centered. Yeah. They're self. They're not trusting what's right in God's eyes. I love that definition in the Bible dictionary for prayer. You have to align your will with God's will. The child and the father's will is connected to the God's will, not the other way around. And here they're just doing what they think is their own eyes, which I believe describes our day and age <laughs> pretty well. Yeah. The other theme that I um sure you read a couple of times through, in those days, Israel had no king and God is to be their king, but they are not worshiping God. They do not have God as their king. And I, I see that as a great tragedy. And it is the um, governmental society right before the choice of the kings. That's right. So the author may be using it multiple. We don't know who the author is. Some people say it suggests it's Samuel, uh, written as a precursor in history. It is one of the historical books. I guess we forgot that, didn't we? Um, the Old Testament's divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And this is the first book of the writings. This is the history books. This is, but it's arranged in the Christian organization chronologically rather than in those three groups. Tragic that these are our themes in this book that we've gone from these marvelous miracles of it's, Sinai it's, it's and 300 years later, <laughs> we are in a desperate state of apostasy. It's a human story though. We just see this over and over again throughout world Hopefully history. Hopefully we can be more patient with ourselves yeah. then. Yeah. And also, also more cautious to hold on to what the Lord says. Well, what we have is this record. You know, they obviously they were writing this record. They didn't have these kinds of records. Yeah. Do you want to jump into the text or is there anything else you wanted to yeah. talk about? So I think um, in chapter one, we've got Judah working with Simeon. And then we've got Joseph trying, the tribes of Joseph trying to retake Bethel. And that's where, do you remember Jacob had those two visions there, that Bethel house of God? And the Lord was with them on some of these. It's a great blessing. I love that. I think that's chapter one, verse 22. Mm -hmm. um, the Lord was with them. So when they're doing things right, the Lord helps them. But some of the stories are just crazy. Before that, there's some mutilation of taking off thumbs and toes, um, which was, they even have artwork describing similar kinds of mutilation across the ancient world, where um, to show your strength and to bright to give terror, they mutilate the human body. And it's it goes against the law of Moses. It's, it's something the law of Moses denounces. So we have to honor our bodies and take care of them. Um, so that was sort of tragic. But it says, also I wanted to clarify this, chapter 1, verse 8, says, The children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. But in verse 21 of that same chapter, it said, The children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But those Jebusites dwelled with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem Unto this day. And when we finally get to the book of um, 2 Samuel and Kings, David is the one who conquers the Jebusites. So I want to just take, I don't want to take it for granted that just because the text says they fought a battle and they won, that that means they're all destroyed. Um, here we have an example in chapter one, again, repeated in three other books of scripture that says, no, actually they did not kill it. And they did not burn the entire city. They did not destroy these people. They did not obey the commandment of God. It wasn't the same as Jericho. 
Correct. It's not the same as Jericho. And I guess that's probably worth talking about. Why does God ask us to destroy a people? This is one of the hard questions in this book. Why is God asking them? Well, they're not obeying God, so they're doing it wrong. But why does God even ask Joshua? Why does God ask these judges to destroy these people? I'm not sure. Um, He does it himself quite a few times. Um, I, I think... In order to provide a place to send his children on the earth, he wants, he doesn't want his children being sent in a wicked world. I think so. I mean, we saw this with Noah, right? If we, if we can um, zoom out and this take This idea a, of purity, I think, is really important. He wants to send children in a place where they can have the opportunity to distinguish from their own experiences good from evil. And you can't do that if you're born in a wicked society. There, if there's only one option, you're not able to distinguish the good. So he wants to send his children down. And also, I think it's merciful of God to stop people in their sinning. Because then they can have a chance to repent in the next life. If all they're doing, if they if they refuse to do righteousness, it's really merciful to stop the wickedness. We saw this with um, you know Lehi's dream when he's destroying Jerusalem, right? So Lehi has this vision of the destruction of Jerusalem, and his first thought from waking up from his dream is how merciful the Lord is. Oh, right. So good. Uh, from the Lord's Example. point of view, there's so much more than just you know well. That their life got ended at age 60 instead of age 90. Right, right. And so there's this, I mean, he has the whole plan in front of him. It's a little bit different. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I just want to always go back to Moses 139. Everything God does is for our work, our glory, our, you know, for the, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. It's all for the, the goodness. So as we dive into looking at some of these battles, I just hope we can remember that, um, the Lord is trying to um, establish a place of, of peace and righteousness so that he can send um, more children from heaven to earth and try to raise up another Zion society. We had Enoch, and we, then we had Melchizedek, and he's trying to raise up another Zion society. But these people are not willing to live the laws that are required. To be fair, the Lord is not really particular about... Um you know, where you are, who you are, it's, you know, are you living the covenant? He he certainly turned this idea onto Israel before. Well, and part of the problem is, I I guess I, um, is this Iron Age. Yes. Um, The, the, the Jews are all, or the Israelites, excuse me, not just the, not just Judah. Um, Chapter one says Judah is, is, is up in the mountains. Judah can't get out of the mountains because the valleys are filled with iron chariots, the, yeah. the iron chariots in this Calvary. But I still feel like it's very important to remember that this guerrilla warfare that they're carrying out here is um, basically all these little farmers who are just peasants up in the villages um, coming down. And so the Lord is miraculously defeating them in great odds because they have iron chariots. They have iron weaponry. They even have iron breastplates. And, you know, the Iron Age has really changed this. Um, let's look at Judges 2. One I like th- 2, yeah. 1 through 8. Yeah, this, the this, Lord's this, talking to him. Do you want to read that? Yeah, this sums up a lot of our themes here. Yeah. So chapter 2, verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to, how do you say that, Bochim? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and said, I made uh, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? 
Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they may be as thorns in your sides, so he's, and their he's, God shall be a snare unto you. It's a little bit Nephi's hard in the King James, too. but yeah. I think he's saying, I gave you this great promise, but you disobeyed me. Why haven't you done it? You know, I think that's what he's trying to say here in a different translation. This might be a little bit easier to read. I always love to read other translations when when it sounds, wait a minute, God wants them to do this? You know, but no, they, they didn't do it. And so that's why I'm just going to jump down a little bit. I have also said, I will drive them out before you, but you haven't done it. I'm going to go to verse eight. They went down to take possession of the land and each to their own inheritance, but the people served the Lord throughout their lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived them, who they had seen all these great things the Lord had done for Israel. And they all died out. And we just start this terrible cycle of apostasy. Yeah. Israel's going to do good. And then Israel does bad. And then they're punished. And then they ask the Lord for help. And the Lord sends a help. And it's just repeated over this consequence of sin. The whole book is very didactic. It's teaching. <laughs> is it like a preacher? You know, it's very uh, preachy. It's very, uh, I guess you use the word teacher. I don't teach. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's a little Lamanite Nephite going on <laughs> yeah. in verse three, right? You know, he, he echoes yeah. that same thing. They'll be, should be thrown in your sides. Yeah. Okay. Buzzing on. Yeah, let's go. In chapter three and four, and we, I guess, starting in chapter four, we get the prophetess Deborah. Right. And there's really only two that have, are good examples of judges. Deborah and Gideon. And then Gideon goes sour at the end because people misunderstand his desire to make a memorial. And it turns into something wicked. We'll talk about that later in chapter seven. But here, Deborah is this great prophetess. And it's just such a refreshing thing to see in the Old Testament that they value um, women and are willing to listen to their voices and, and, and honor them. I just love this, that it reminds me a little bit like Joan of Arc or something, you know, that yeah. she's this woman who re- speaks for God. And she reminds me of Eliza R. Snow in our um, own world and many other great women who have raised their voices and spoken for God. It reminds me of Mary and Martha in the New Testament who raised their voices and testify of God. And I think that's one of the messages the Lord uh, repeated in the restoration to the prophet Joseph. Um, You know, I want Emma to be speaking and testifying and preaching and teaching. I want to hear women's voices. And as he organized the Relief Society, he begged them to speak and teach and prophesy and speak in the gift of tongues and to heal and to um, act as prophetesses. So I have some follow-up questions here. So so it says she judged Israel. What does that mean? You know, I it, all we've got is this text. We've got a lot of extra commentary, but I try to look at the commentary in light of the text, and I don't want to add too much more into it. In the teaching of the, of the, of the legends of the Jews, she's a righteous woman. She's a mother. She's a wife. Um, but she also is a judge. So I assume what that meant was she knew the law and that she would be able to go before the people when they had questions and they'd say, can I do this and do this? And she would say, Moses taught us that we're supposed to have fairness here. And Moses taught us, and no, you need to raise up seed to this child or whatever it was that that the ramification of. Um, but when it's time to... Um, to go fight, it looks to me like she lives just south of the Sea of Galilee, if you get out your maps. And um, there's there's problems, skirmishes going on up in northern Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee. And so she asks Barak, the, the general, to go and fight. And he says, I'm not going without the prophetess. I want you to come with me. I want you to direct my battle. It sounds just like when um, 
Hezekiah asks Isaiah to direct the battle. He says, you know, I'll, I'll be the general. I'll be the king here. I'll lead the battle, but I'm not going unless you tell me where to go. Is this a little bit of Moses and Joshua as well? The, these themes of the prophet, you know, leading the, oh, the sword. Yes. Okay. So she then becomes the prophetess leading the sword here. A great woman of faith. And, you know, I see just not so that Deborah doesn't look so odd. Do you remember back when Rebecca received prophecy on which child should be the leader? And she influences her husband in a way to make sure that that prophecy was carried out. So we have seen other women also receiving prophecy in the Old Testament. And I, I I see them every day around me. You know, I see great women receiving prophecy for their family and their lives and building the kingdom of God and carrying out the Lord's work. But in chapter 4, verse 15, they begin this battle, and the Kenites, who are actually, um, you know, in-laws to Moses here, um, they settle with the Israelites in verse 14. And then strangely enough, another woman comes up who acts in God's work and she kills the king by pounding a nail through his temples, a tent nail, so something that was being used on their tents. Um, But through this act of um, Barak, the general, and the prophetess Deborah and Jael, who reminds me of um, all the great stories of somebody sneaking into a tent and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> seducing somebody to, a, into a degree of of um, being able to carry out the work of God. And we get the end of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5 with this beautiful Hebrew poetry. And um, the everybody that I read on this said that this is one of the oldest two sections of Scripture because it hasn't been redacted because it was already a song. It was already beautiful poetry, so they did not redact it. You know, it hasn't been cut and edited like so much of the scripture has been. But the song is just beautiful. Look at verse 7. I arose, a mother of Israel. And by the end of this beautiful song, we learned that um, the land had rest for 40 years. I don't know if that 40 is literal or if it's, again, a purification period. But I'm so glad that in between some of these horrific cycles of apostasy, that there's at least a short period of time where it's peaceful. So the Midianites, these are the some people that are living in northern Israel. How much Israel. of a gap? Do we know how much of a gap between Deborah and Gideon? Well, you know, sometimes they We're give us sure. um, periods. They sometimes tell us time periods. I'm wondering if some of these things are even overlapping. Could be. Because yeah. we just know it's like about a 250, 300-year time period over all of it. And it appears that some of it is chronological, but I don't know if the, if they're overlapping or not. Some of these could be happening just within specific tribes, you know, as opposed to all of Israel. Exactly. It appears like none of them are all of Israel. All of these are are just that local area. But um, Gideon seems like he is so scared and that he does not want to follow this angel's direction to say, it just reminds me so many times that God calls a child or God calls someone who does not feel, God calls someone who will be humble and meek and malleable in his hands. Gideon is one of those. And he just turns into a great warrior. And the Lord fights this battle as miraculously as he fought for Moses crossing the Red Sea. This is just one of the so many awesome stories of Gideon. I loved this definition of him um, in chapter 6, verse 34. He was one who contended for the Lord. Um, That's his new name that he gets uh, when the angel calls him. And I, I also like the fact that, again, the angel is using fire and light to demonstrate that it is from God. 
which is a, a symbol of the spirit as well in our own lives. But he's questioning the Lord and the Lord sends this fire, uh, miraculously ignites his rod. And then he's got the question about the fleece, you know, is it going to be wet or dry? He reverses it. And um, he, he, I have a question on that one. You know, are we supposed to test the Lord? Are we supposed to ask for signs? No. So how does this work? I don't, I don't know. I, I think he humors us from time to time. You oh, know? I, I think he does humor <laughs> us, especially if he wants, he wants to call you as a prophet. Yeah. And I think it really is depending or on what's in, yeah, it's what's, what's in your heart um, and, and your why, heart? why you're asking it. Of course, um, I, like, think I don't want to do this. So if you prove it to me, because I mean, the Lord's proven us many times and people find a way to dismiss it, right? We see these themes over I'm and over I'm glad again. you said that. It depends on the condition of your heart. Yeah. You're, you're exactly right. Um, let's jump into the text. Um, so the battle starts, they give him this, this new name that I mentioned means one contends to fight with the Lord, even though it looks in English like, oh, what's he doing with this name of Baal? That's just, um, go read a different translation or two or three or a hundred. But I, I love the fact that the Lord prepares him. And right before the battle, I just want to introduce this statement by our late elder Neil A. Maxwell, quote, God does not begin by asking our ability, but only about our availability. And if we prove our dependability, he will increase our capability. Yeah. Isn't that great? So, <laughs> He's not asking your ability now. He knows your potential. He knows our far more than our DNA. He knows our intelligences um, and our hearts and our um, or our sensitivity to the spirit. And so jo uh, Gideon, shaking in his boots, goes out and the Lord says, you've got too many warriors. You know, you've got and he reduces it down. Anybody who is scared, go home. Yeah. <laughs> I find this so interesting because obviously you want a bigger army. I know. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> but he reduces from 3,200 to 300. 90% of his army he sends home. And this way is so interesting. The way he chooses them when they lap up the water, right. you know, um, because drink. I would have thought a better warrior would not have gone down like a dog and started lapping up the water, but he would have been on one knee holding his sword. And one knee, you can still keep your, your body in red, in a ready position to attack, to me, that would have been the better soldier. And it's such a crazy thing because how do you know that people with more faith are going to be lapping it up like a dog? I mean, I just think it's a crazy <laughs> way to, to do it, except in Lord, the Lord just wanted, he didn't care who it was that was left because no one's going to get killed. He didn't care who was left. He just cared that it was shown it was God's will. It was by God's battle. God fought the battle. Anyway, 90% sent home. This is something that comes up quite a bit. We, we touched on this theme a little bit earlier, too, um, about this idea of purity. You know, the Lord can do more with 300 men who are pure than he can mm -hmm. with 10,000 who are, are scared. Well, that's why unfaithful. I said it's an interesting way of choosing the purity. Yeah. If you're lopping up like a dog, does that mean you're <laughs> pure? I mean, the whole thing just is. But yes, of course, the hope is that all 3,000 were pure, but those with fear were sent home. I, I think that was a good cut. Um, but the last cut is is so interesting. But I just love the idea that the slogan that we get here is the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You know, this, the Lord is going to fight with us. That's chapter 7, verse 20. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. That's who conquers. The forces are organized by God. And then we unfortunately see the cycle again later on. But this battle is beautifully described as um, 
thousands, what was it, 10,000 are slain or something. And then we, they, poor Gideon wants to, um, as he's, after he's ruling for a long time, he wants to take um, and make a memorial of this great miracle. And it turns into something that people start worshiping. It's a disaster. It, it's echoes of Moses and the yeah. calf again. Sadness, sadness. I don't think that he intended that, but Gideon does not establish a, a dynasty, that's for sure. Um, but I also want to just remind us that memorials are good to help us remember. Let's just not use them as a snare. I sort of feel like that, I like our... our, our commandments too. It's a proxy for commandments. You know, that, that seems to be a snare. And it's one reason why we're so heavily reliant on modern revelation. Like don't, don't narrow your focus so much as you miss the mark. Oh, right. right. Be obedient. Be completely and these obedient. people, the next one does miss the mark. Very, I'm glad you said that. Yeah. I don't know if you were thinking about chapter 11, but yeah. Jephthah is another big one. And he completely misses the mark. Now the Lord calls him. It, it appears, it appears because in verse chapter 11, verse 29, it says the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Um, but he, he completely misses the mark because he makes this vow that I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the house. And then he follows through with it in sacrificing his daughter rather than saying, oh, I meant an animal and I'm going to wait for an animal. Um, but it just shows how, how messed up they were. But other people have chosen to interpret it saying, no, no, no. Um, it was a vow of virginity and that she no longer was able to have children. Um, they think that that would be one possible interpretation. When I read it, I don't get that out of it, but that is um, one way of looking at it. I don't know. I just think um, he may have been inspired by the Lord, but he made some poor choices because his values were not where they aligned, where they needed to be. Um, and whatever kind of sacrifice, whether it was her virginity or whether it was her life, it was wrong. Um, that is not what was intended. And it much better to not kill um, your daughter or not put that vow up, a challenge on well, your I daughter. Think for my, this, personal, this my, my personal thought on this is that be careful in your vow. Oh, um, yes. Because this does not seem like a vow that the Lord would inspire. It's almost a, he's grateful for the Lord, the so he wants to make a vow. sacrifice whenever it comes out? Yeah, I'm not sure that that was an inspired vow. Well, whether or not it was, right? we should be careful of what we promise. That's uh, for sure. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, well, the covenants come from the Lord and then we promise, not the other way around. Oh, okay. Right? We have you to know? follow through with what the Lord says. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit more. This is a little bit of a same area of sort of sign seeking, in my opinion. It's like, if I if I do this, if I sacrifice this, then the Lord will bless well, me. And it I'm gets like, even mm, worse not, not if it's not from the with Lord. the next one. Because the Lord gave the Nazarite vow for those who want to go through a period of purification. And usually it was a short-term thing. Um, but in the case of, of our next um, story, chapter 12 and 13, we've got this um, devout, righteous um, family who are told to raise up a—look um, at chapter 13, verse 5— Thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And when we go back and we read about the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, I mean, in the law of Moses, it's usually for a short period of time. It even appears in the New Testament that Paul went into a period of being a Nazarite for a period of time. But we know that John the Baptist was a Nazarite for um well, at least it appears that way in our small record of him there. And here it appears that the Lord commanded 
um, these parents to raise their child not touching any fruit of the vine. So no raisins, no grapes, no wine, and then don't cut your hair. And um, it sounds like they did a good job raising him, but he made some poor choices when he had autonomy in his own life. And um, they... so Samson, tragedy of Samson's judgment lets you know that they're choosing wicked people as their judgment. And he's not even killing. Here he is, this great man of strength. And he, he's, we already see that he's an example of what not to do, I guess. We see that he's making some poor choices. Do you remember back when, um, before Esau um, sold the birthright, he, he said, oh, I'd rather have a mess of pottage. You know, I'd rather have some lentil soup, you know. And we see that here because... Um, Samson is making these riddles and these where he talks about eating honey. Bees are an unclean animal. When it talks about the promised land being filled with milk and honey, that's goat's milk and date honey. Now, it's very clear that honey was not to be used in um, the law of Moses in the temple, in the tabernacle. It was not to be used with the bread. Um, now, could there be clean honey? Perhaps. Um, because... The Jews certainly now have kosher honey. So perhaps they had a way there. But in our text, a bee is an unclean animal. And um, certainly the dead animal is goes against the law of the Nazarite. The Nazarite was not to go near anything dead, human or animal. And he goes up to this line. You know, He's just breaking the law. He's not living his covenant. He's not living his vow. And um, this is a vow the Lord asked him to live. And as you mentioned earlier, let's let God make the ramifications of the covenant and we follow. But um, in this ceremonial context, he is already playing around with unclean things. So he's, he's supposed to, he has a miracle birth. I think the Lord blesses his parents, right? But then and it appears that he's relying on his intellect and power more than God. I agree. He, he's, I mean, the theme that comes out of me for Samson is, talent, right? But he's not respectful of where it came from. And many are called and few are chosen. Is, uh, is the, one of our favorite yeah. themes here. So he's he's clearly called, and I think this is a tale of of warning that you can have it all. You can have the birth or you can have the miracle birth, the blessing from the Lord from the beginning. That does not guarantee your, your salvationcy. And clearly he's not doing that. You know, he's supposed to be set aside, even among the holy as an Azrite, I guess, if you want to interpret it that way. And he's not following through. There's consequences for that. He's obviously um, has a real weakness in the law of chastity. Yeah. And for our generation, we know that that can become so all-consuming for those people who have um, that challenge of of breaking a pornography habit or whatever, that it is excruciatingly difficult. But he seems like um, had a hard time with law of chastity with his, the women in his life. And then... It, I don't know if I would just call him stupid. (laughs) You know, he's not even drunk because he's not (laughs) drinking alcohol. But why in the world can't he tell that these wicked wives that he's chosen or these wicked women that he's affiliating with are not abusing him and and trying to destroy him? One one interpretation is it's not stupidity; it's it's pride. Oh, of course, if pride's the root of all sin, yeah, he's just arrogant. Um, that, that's definitely in the realm of possibility. They don't, those aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> but, um, I, well, I, the poor guy's got a lot of sins, but the Lord still 
honored him at the end of his life. Isn't that interesting? It does. I, the Lord uses wicked people to bring about his own righteous purposes. I have a thought here of like, who who could he have been if if he had, oh, with know. his heart, not just his head, but his heart had started living these covenants, right? He would have been able to bless the people in such a better way. And we may have been a David or a Joshua. Yeah. Could we possibly have even changed the trajectory and not needed a king because we would have had a leader who was a righteous leader who could have unified and clearly talented, but, but such a loss of potential, loss of potential for me, this is a a warning for, I mean, I feel like I've been extremely blessed. Um, And for me, this is a constant warning. I'm like, that's not enough. Your heart has to be in the right spot. Don't forget where these blessings come from. Always give God honor. Yeah. You know, so we can look at the example of Samson and grow from it, even so it's if it's a it contrast is, from yeah, Gideon. Yeah, right. Yeah, complete contrast. And then, starting in chapter seventeen, is where we get that phrase that I mentioned earlier. This theme: there was no king in Israel, but every man did what was right in his own eyes. And then in chapter eighteen, it's repeated to remember um, that we should be loyal to our heavenly king. And then in 21, it's repeated again, there's no king. And I think it's building on what's going to come to pass next, which is the um, birth of Samuel and the establishment of a kingdom when the people um, reject God, which is tragic. Um, So they go into captivity again in chapter 18. Right. I, I, I just keep going through this as I'm flipping the pages. They're in and out. So may we... Not do what's right in our own eyes, but do what's right in God's eyes and learn from this. Yeah. I hope. Absolutely. Don't rest God on your bless laurels. you. Shalom. Thank See you, you next week. <laughs>